the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, and Denise, anybody staying here? I see so, so much movement here. Denise will, will read it to us. Matthew chapter 11 verses 1 to 24. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, that will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. I thought it was interesting to hear uh, Fred talk about the middle song before. I, I quite like that idea. I think uh, maybe that would be a good, good idea. I could go for even longer. 
or uh, I thought maybe even we could have subs, you know, so we could have a bit of a team and uh, when, I, uh, when I used to play ice hockey, you'd only, it was such a tiring sport, you'd only be on for uh, 30 seconds, so a minute, maximum a minute and a half, so uh, I don't know how that would go down in preaching, but uh, maybe we could give it a go one time. Um, well, we're looking at uh, this passage from Matthew 11 uh, this morning, and uh, I don't know if, uh, if many of you have heard of the book uh, The Reason for God by Tim Keller, uh, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Scepticism, uh, but it's a book designed to make uh, a case for biblical Christianity. It's, it's, it's a book designed to argue the case for the truth of Christianity and uh, it does a really good job at that. Uh, Don Carson called it the most important apologetic book uh, of the last century. Uh, But it's one of those questions that comes around over and over again, isn't it? Uh, Why should I believe in Jesus? Uh, Is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he uh, the one? Now maybe that's a question that you've asked uh, or maybe uh, it's a question that you're asking at the moment. You might have uh, friends who ask you uh, at work or at school, why should they believe? Why should they believe uh, Jesus' claim about who he is? You might uh, know people who've read The Da Vinci Code uh, and who think that Christianity is a great hoax. Uh, Why should they believe? What reasons can you give them? Well, a long time before uh, Tim Keller wrote The Reason for God, Matthew wrote his Gospel And the reason that Matthew wrote his Gospel was to do the same thing, that is to make the case for Jesus. To make the case for Jesus as God's Messiah sent to take away uh, the sin of the world. Matthew wrote his Gospel to prove that that Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, He wrote it to help to prove to you and I uh, and to give us reasons to believe and to give us reasons that we can share with other people uh, as well. Uh, we saw, you might remember, you probably don't, uh, because it was in January, uh, that in, in Matthew 2, uh, Matthew gave four evidences from the Old Testament and the early chapters of his Gospel are really stacked with evidence for who Jesus is. And I think as we've gone through uh, Matthew's Gospel, we've seen uh, the evidence and his efforts to prove who Jesus is. But those, uh, those efforts really come to a head here uh, with the... Uh, with the question of John the Baptist. John is sitting in prison uh, and he's a little confused by the reports that he hears about Jesus' ministry and so he sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? It turns out that even John the Baptist has some doubts about who Jesus is. Uh, He's looking at what Jesus is doing and he's wondering, well, was I mistaken? Uh, is Jesus really the one? Uh, Jesus, uh, John was the forerunner of Jesus. He's the one who saw uh, the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove. Surely if anyone uh, was certain, it was John. But it turns out that he has some doubts as well. It turns out that Jesus wasn't quite the Messiah that uh, John had expected When John uh, prophesied back in in Matthew chapter 3, he said, I will baptise you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, 
He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In other words, a a significant part of uh, John's expectation was that the Messiah uh, would be someone who would judge, would be someone who would judge the world. And as John looked at Jesus' ministry uh, and saw Jesus preaching the good news and healing people and all those kinds of things, he could see the saving bit, he could see the mercy of God bit, but he couldn't see the judgment. Where was the judgment? Where was the winnowing fork? And so John sends to Jesus and asks, are you the coming one? Are you really the one or, or is there someone else coming after you that we should look for? I think it's encouraging to stop and just to take that fact in that John wasn't afraid to ask the difficult question. John wasn't afraid to say, are you really the Messiah, Jesus? Or is there someone else? We shouldn't be afraid or ashamed to ask the same question. Is Jesus really the Messiah? That was the question that the Bereans were commended for asking. When Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 17, when they uh, went and preached the gospel to the Bereans, the Bereans were commended not just for receiving the truth, but for testing what Paul and Silas said about Jesus, for testing that against the Old Testament. We don't have anything to be afraid of in testing that because uh, it holds together. It's a good question to ask. It's a noble question to ask because there's nothing to be gained by believing a lie. So if that's the question that you have, uh, don't think that asking that question out loud means that you're necessarily a godless atheist. If you're a, a young person who's grown up in the church uh, and you're wondering why you should believe Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, don't be afraid to ask that question, to ask your parents, to ask uh, youth group leaders, to ask uh, me or, or any older Christian, why should we believe in Jesus? If you've been a, a Christian for a long time, in church for a long time, don't be ashamed to ask that question, why should I believe? Why? Give me reasons. Or if you're new to church or if you aren't a Christian, don't be afraid. Don't think that we'll be offended if you ask us why should we believe what you say about Jesus. It's a good question to ask. That's the question that John asked and it's the question that Jesus took time to patiently answer. So what was that answer? Well, significantly, I think, Jesus doesn't just say yes. Are you the coming one? Yes, I am. John, don't be stupid. Don't ask questions like that. Just believe me. Just believe it. Jesus doesn't say that. He instead gives reasons to believe. Here are the reasons. Verse 4, he says to John's disciples, go back and report to John what you, what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And good news is preached to the poor. Jesus' answer is, is both stunning uh, and powerful. 
It's stunning because at one level he's not saying anything new. Uh, He's not telling John anything he didn't already know. So in verse 2 we've already discovered uh, that John had heard about Jesus' ministry. He'd heard about the miracles, he'd heard that people were were seeing and hearing and walking and leaping for joy and and, uh, all those kinds of things. But Jesus replies back to John and says, well, I'll tell you what you already know. The dead, you know, the, uh, the dead are raised, the, the, the lame walk. What's Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is responding to John, uh, not with new facts, but with a new framework. He's responding to John uh, with language from the Old Testament in which John can understand the things that he's seeing in Jesus' ministry. Uh, it might be good to uh, work through two of the most significant places in the Old Testament uh, where we kind of pick up on this language. And the first is Isaiah uh, 35. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Isaiah 35. It's a little past halfway uh, in the Bible. So Isaiah 35 verse 4, uh, what will it be like when uh, God shows mercy to his people, to the world? Uh, Isaiah says, uh, God says through Isaiah, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come, he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So what will it be like when God comes? The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap and the mute will shout for joy. The second example is from Isaiah 61. So Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 2. Uh, so this, this is words put into the mouth of, uh, of God's Messiah in the Old Testament. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So John sends to Jesus and asks, you know, I'm not seeing the judgement, are you the one? And Jesus says, well the Old Testament said that the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind, open the ears of the deaf, heal the lame, cure those with leprosy, bring joy to the poor and that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. It's uh, helpful, I think, to compare Jesus' claim uh, to be the Messiah and the Saviour of the world, to compare that with the claims of other kind of religious leaders uh, in other world religions. Uh, Take, for instance, the claims of Muhammad. So Muhammad lived in the 6th century AD and he claimed that the angel Gabriel visited him with revelations. 
Muhammad claimed that the Bible too was the word of God but that it had been corrupted by Jews and Christians. Uh, he had the pure revelation from God uh, and the Bible was, uh, was corrupted. So anything in the Bible which contradicted his revelation must have been part of the corrupted portion uh, of the Bible. Contrast that claim with Jesus' claim that all of scripture is fulfilled in him. Uh, which claim is harder? Which claim is, is, is harder to make? Uh, Jesus' claim is much harder because his claim demands verification of every, every kind of word, every kind of sentence, every prophecy in the Old Testament must find its fulfilment in Christ, otherwise it doesn't make sense as a system. Muhammad's claim, on the other, on the other hand, is unverifiable, it's untestable. Anything that doesn't agree is ruled out before the fact. Uh, it's what you call unfalsifiable uh, it, it, because it disqualifies out of hand anything which, which disagrees with it. So it's impossible to, to disprove it uh, before the fact. Uh, interestingly, that's the same problem that plagues the Marxist reconstruction of history. You'll be interested to know. So if Marxist reconstructions of history are keeping you awake at night, just be, uh, just be encouraged to know that uh, there's a problem in terms of falsifiability uh, in the Marxist thought system. Anyway, that's beside the point. The point is that in comparison, see, Jesus, comparing Jesus' claim with the claims of Muhammad are useful because it shows us that there is a coherence and an authentic, authentication ability in the Gospel, in Jesus' claims. Jesus' claims are verifiable and testable. Uh, or consider uh, another uh, sort of group, the early Gnostics, the early Christian Gnostics, Christian Gnostics. The Gnostics were a heretical uh, Christian sect in the early centuries and out of their camp came things like the Gospel of uh, Judas. Uh, the Gospel of Judas was popularised by Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code uh, and Dan Brown claims that the Gnostic form of Christianity is the true Christianity. There's lots of problems with that theory. Uh, at least one problem is that the Gnostic Gospels were written long, a long time after the life of Jesus. They were written in the 2nd and the 3rd century, uh, whereas the, the Gospels that we have access to in the Bible were written within the lifetime uh, of the people who knew Jesus within the 1st century. But what's even more interesting, I think, and even more helpful uh, to notice is how the Gnostic Gospels, in an attempt to refashion Jesus to be a different Jesus, a Jesus that they like, they end up severing him from the Old Testament. So one of the, kind of the views of the Gnostics was that there was a, uh, an evil demigod, which is often, often associated with the Yahweh of the Old Testament, that kind of trapped us in, in, uh, in this physical world. Right? So Jesus is set against the God of the Old Testament. But in doing that, in setting Jesus against the Old Testament, the Gnostics severed Jesus from the whole idea of prophecy and fulfilment, of, of, of being able to authenticate who Jesus is. In fabricating a Jesus, they created a Jesus who has no legitimacy, no verifiability. 
In contrast, the New Testament Jesus didn't just appear out of nowhere, but he came in fulfilment of the Old Testament. He came in fulfilment of a long strand of prophecy about who the Messiah would be and what he would be like. Or lastly, compare the Jesus of the New Testament with the God of Elizabeth Elizabeth Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love. Now, I have to confess I haven't read Eat, Pray, Love. I don't know if that's confession or a kind of a badge of honour, but anyway. um, But uh, Elizabeth Gilbert's God in her book Eat, Pray, Love is a God founded entirely on personal experience. So uh, it's, it's a God bound up entirely with what she experienced uh, and thus it's not a God open to external kind of testing and authentication. We're entirely dependent on her personal experience of who God is. We're entirely dependent on that. There is nothing that we can test that against. In contrast, the Jesus, the God of the Bible, of the New Testament, the God who Jesus is, is a God who is open to verification and authentication. You might think that concocting a whole religion was a pretty straightforward affair, wouldn't you? But actually, when you look at a lot of the world religions, you discover that that's not the case. Invariably, it often ends up with either one man or one woman's personal views, severed from history, severed from time, severed from any kind of uh, public verification. But in contrast, the Jesus that we meet in the New Testament is open to that kind of authentication. He fits neatly within the complex web of biblical expectation woven together, not just by one man, not not just by Jesus, but by numerous people over thousands of years. He's confirmed not only by his own words, but by the words of people long dead by the writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's confirmed by the miraculous works that he did and miraculous works which fit the Old Testament expectations of who the Messiah would be. John asked Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we expect someone else? And Jesus says, well look, here are the facts, you do the maths, you work it out for yourself. It's pretty clear. So that's uh, the first kind of strand of evidence, I guess, that Jesus gives, uh, the, his, uh, the expectation of the Old Testament. But Jesus also uh, gives another strand uh, beyond what he told John. As John's disciples go back to John with Jesus' message, Jesus says to the crowd in verse 7, what did you go out into the desert to see? So when they'd gone out into the desert to, to see John the Baptist, What had they gone out to see? Did they go out to see a reed swayed by the wind? That is, a man sort of blown about by all kinds of new ideas, by the latest fads. No, they didn't go out for that. Did they go out to see a man dressed in fine clothes, building his own empire? No, they didn't see that either. Men in fine clothes don't hang around in the desert. Then why did they go? Jesus says, they went out to see a prophet and one who was more than a prophet. According to Jesus, uh, John was the greatest prophet because in verse 10, he's the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare 
your way before you. Uh, That is, uh, John was the only prophet who would personally prepare the way for Jesus. So there were lots of prophets in the Old Testament but all of them died long before Jesus came. But John, John was the only Old Testament prophet who lived to see the day of the Messiah. But John's significance here extends beyond that privilege. Uh, It's interesting to note actually, uh, if you look at all of the four Gospels, that the account of John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus is one of the few events, apart from the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that makes it into all four Gospels. So you get events that occur in three out of the four Gospels or two out of the four Gospels. Uh, There are some events that only occur um, in in one of the Gospels. Uh, But the story of John the Baptist, the account of John the Baptist, occurs in all four Gospels. Why is that? Why is John so important? John is so important because he adds another layer, a unique layer of authentication of who Jesus is apart from Jesus himself. Not only that, uh, not only did, did John point to the identity of Jesus and say, look, this is Jesus, he's the Messiah. Not only did the Old Testament point to Jesus and say, here he is. But the Old Testament also pointed to John. So it might be helpful to look up uh, some passages in the Old Testament uh, to confirm that. The first is in Isaiah 40. So this is the passage, Isaiah 40 is the passage that is quoted uh, early on in all four Gospels in reference to John. Isaiah 40 verse 3. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain shall be uh, and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And Mark goes on to say, uh, in his gospel and so John came he quotes that, that passage from Isaiah 40 uh, the voice of one crying in the desert and so John came baptising and preaching in the desert in other words the Old Testament expected a time when someone would herald the arrival of the Messiah and John came in fulfilment of that uh, the passage that Jesus quotes in Matthew 11 comes from Malachi 3. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Uh, and if you turn to Malachi 3, you see the, the uh, prophecy, uh, another prophecy of uh, John the Baptist. So Malachi chapter 3, uh, the Lord says through Malachi, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. Uh, The coming day of judgment, uh, the coming day uh, will be a day of judgment and mercy 
But uh, God says in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 5, so if you flick over to the next chapter, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So John was not uh, Elijah himself, but his ministry was modelled on that of Elijah, uh, even down to the clothes he wore. So uh, he wore uh, a hair coat, a coat of camel's hair with a belt around his waist, and that's the outfit that Elijah was known to wear in 2 Kings chapter 1. Uh, But more than that, John's ministry was a ministry modelled on that of Elijah. His ministry would be a ministry of repentance. Uh, The hearts of fathers would return to their children and children to their fathers. John came with that kind of ministry, not pointing to himself, but pointing to Jesus. So we're left with this complex web of verification and authentication. Not only did the Old Testament point to Jesus, not only did John the Baptist point to Jesus, but the Old Testament also pointed to John. So there's this kind of triple authentication that interlocks and interweaves together to verify the identity of Jesus. Uh, Think again of Muhammad. Not only did his writings uh, revise and contradict what had gone before, Uh, But he appeared out of nowhere. He appeared with no precursor, uh, no one before him saying, uh, look, here here he is, this uh, this guy, you should listen to him. Uh, There was no one who went before him to externally authenticate him. He alone experienced his uh, encounter with Gabriel. There was no one to, to observe that and to verify that. He defined an entire religion, which I think claims something like a billion adherents worldwide, but there is no or so little authenticate, you know, kind of room for authentication and verification. Think of the multitude of modern day messiahs that crop up every now and again. Many of them claim one strand of evidence They might claim the fulfilment of a prophecy uh, or an external witness, but none had that complex web of verification or the witness of thousands of years of prophecy and expectation which all point to them. Only Jesus makes that outrageous and testable claim that thousands of years of word from God all points to him. In fact, uh, it's interesting to observe that even in the movies, even in movies that are deliberate concoctions you know, of, of fanciful stories, even in movies people can't make such an outrageous claim as Jesus makes. Think of The Matrix. I don't know how many people have seen The Matrix. There is one prophecy, one prophecy about Neo and everyone goes, he must be the one. He's the one. Or Harry Potter. There's one prophecy. There's one prophecy and it's not even very clear. I can't remember what it is. It was like, and there'll be a guy and he will oppose the other guy. You know? Like, that's it. There's one prophecy. 
But Jesus makes an extraordinary claim about his life is that he is the fulfilment of every prophecy in the Old Testament, every shadow in the Old Testament, all point to him and not only that, there's John as well. And they all weave together in this complex tapestry to give us certainty about who Jesus is. God hasn't left us without testimony as though we just have to kind of make this leap of faith. Can we know? Who knows? We'll just believe it anyway. No. God says, I'll show you. I'll make it certain. And he has. Well, having given those two strands of evidence, Jesus moves on, lastly, to a very surprising lament uh, and warning. He says in verse 16, To what will I compare this generation? What are they like? Jesus asked, They're like children who can't be pleased. Uh, They're like children who call out to each other, We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge for you and you didn't mourn. No matter what happens, the people aren't happy and they can't be convinced. Jesus says, John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Nothing is ever good enough. The people want a different John. They're not happy with the John that they got and they're not happy with the Jesus that they got. And so Jesus unleashes these blistering woes. He says, woe to you Chorazin, woe to you Bethsaida. Why? Because of the miracles that have been performed in you, had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you and you Capernaum. Will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it would be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, the problem isn't lack of evidence. The problem isn't that there's not good reasons for them to believe. Jesus says there's more than enough evidence. Rather, the problem is the deep root of human unbelief, the deep root of human distrust. Yes, there's such a thing as sober reflection and sober evaluation. That's a good and a a respectable thing. We don't want to be led by the nose into all kinds of ridiculous errors and deceits. The Bible has no room for a, a, a faith which is belief contrary to the facts. But beyond reasonable evaluation, there is also in the human heart a hidden resistance to biblical truth. The people always found a reason not to believe. They didn't believe because John fasted. They didn't believe because Jesus ate. No matter what happened, They were never happy. What will it take for people to believe? Will it take uh, video footage of a miracle? Well, video footage hasn't been enough to convince people of the moon landing in the 60s. 
Uh, Will it take countless eyewitness testimonies and video evidence and physical evidence? Well, that hasn't been enough to convince people that the Holocaust really happened. It hasn't been enough to convince people that September 11 really was a terrorist attack and not some kind of devious ploy by the CIA. What will it take to convince people that Lance Armstrong is a drug cheat and not the victim of a massive conspiracy? You see, the depths of unbridled scepticism are endless, actually. Not just in terms of biblical truth, but in terms of truth in general. Not just unbelief in terms of no religious faith, but unbelief in terms of the distrust of any truth, any truth at all, any truth in the face of reasonable evidence. You see, there's a kind of scepticism, true scepticism in fact, is not critical thinking, but it's the endless refusal to accept the facts in the face of reasonable and good evidence. If you're a deeply sceptical person, A good question to ask, I think, often is, what would it take for me to believe? You know, what would it take for me to believe that this is true? But don't start by asking that about uh, the Gospels or about Jesus. Start by asking that about the moon landing, you know, or the Holocaust. What would it take for me to believe that that's true? What evidence is sufficient? Just as an intellectual exercise, what evidence is sufficient for you to believe that. And for those who are more sceptical than reasonable, the answer will always be nothing. There's no evidence that is enough to satisfy them because there's always a glimmer of doubt. There's always something, there's always a question hanging over it. There's always, but what if? What if all those cyclists had gathered together in kind of a, you know, a vicious tirade against Lance Armstrong because he was so successful. What if that was true? For the deeply sceptical, truth is never enough. There's always room for doubt. But Jesus says, when it comes to his life and his ministry, there is enough evidence, enough evidence to repent and to believe in him. He says to the crowds that if the people of Sodom, right, one of the worst cities in the Old Testament, if they'd seen the kinds of things that Jesus had done, it would have been enough for them to repent. But the people who saw Jesus, the people who lived in Jesus' day, they weren't happy. They wouldn't believe. You might not believe that there's enough evidence, but at the end of the day, it's not your view of whether the evidence is sufficient that matters. It's God's view of whether he thinks there's enough for you to believe and Jesus says that there is. Jesus says it will be more bearable on the day of judgement for the people of Sodom than it will be for us because we have enough evidence to repent and believe in Jesus. On the other hand, Jesus says, Blessed is the one who doesn't fall away on account of me. Blessed is the one who looks at Jesus' life and does believe. Blessed is the one who who looks at John the Baptist 
and is willing to accept that he was the Elijah who was to come. Blessed is the one who hears John's message and believes it. Jesus says the one who believes John's message about Jesus will be even greater in the kingdom of heaven than John. The one who believes the message is greater than the one who speaks it. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you've not left us without witness and testimony to the truth which defines our whole world. Lord, thank you that in your great wisdom, when you determine to save us from our sin and from your judgment, you didn't just send Jesus and ask us to believe in him, but you worked for 2,000 years preparing the way. You worked for 2,000 years preparing the expectations, showing us our need, so that when Jesus came, we could see that he is the one that you sent. He is the Messiah. He meets our need. Thank you for John and for his ministry. Thank you that he prepared the way for Jesus and gives us hope and assurance that Jesus really is who he said he is. Father, if there are any of us who doubt, Lord, help us not to be afraid to ask the difficult question. Help us to test and to see that Jesus is your son sent to save us from our sins. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.